0: What we focus on is Bitcoin mining, because I can say that Bitcoin mining can provide jobs, local investment, grid stability, environmental cleanup, and the ability to enhance green and renewable energy projects. And there's not a policymaker on the planet who doesn't hear those things and go, I want those things.
1: Hello from Nashville. Me and Danny Boy are just about to pack up. We've had a great week here. Brilliant time over at Bitcoin Park. They've done an amazing job over there. Make sure you do go and check that out. The work that Odell, Harry Sudock, and Rod are doing. Anyway... Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Iris Energy, the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today on the show, I have Dennis Porter. Now, listen, Dennis has been doing some great work recently. He set up the Satoshi Action Fund, and he's been out there working with politicians, senators, people in Congress to try and pass or try and support pro-Bitcoin legislation And he's had a lot of successes. So it made sense to get him on the show. So while we were out here in Nashville, Danny spoke to... Dennis said, come over, come and tell us the work you've been doing. And so we get into a bunch of things. We do talk about the political climate, whether we should care about what politicians say or, or how they consider Bitcoin and the work he's been doing. So I do want to say a big congratulations to Dennis for the wins he's had. And yeah, hope you enjoy this. If you've got any questions about this or anything else, please do drop me an email. It's did.com. We're packing up. We're off to Austin now. going to be there for a couple of days. Then I am off to Argentina. All right, enjoy the show.
0: Hey man, I was a podcaster once too. So I, you I, were? Hear, I hear these things.
1: I didn't even notice. Yeah. You did that. <laughs> you did that
0: for a while. I did. I did it for a little while,
1: and then you it's stopped. Like, yeah, I'm a failed podcaster. You're a failed podcaster. So am I. You failed. You failed forward. I <laughs> failed forward. I did not. <laughs> and now you're. A, I'm a quitter. You And know, now you're going Now you're running for presidency or something? Yeah. Uh,
0: Dennis Porter. 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 Twenty twenty eight. Twenty twenty eight. Is that right? Would you? Would you run? I could a, run. Actually no, I can't run technically until, well, okay. So there's the way the president works is actually funny because, so I could, even though I'm not old enough technically, cause you have to be 35 to run, to, to, to be elected president and really? to, sorry, to take the office and office of the presidency, you have to be 35 and, um, I'm 34, but I turn 35 before I take the office. So by the time I take the office, I can go in there. But the funny thing is I had to talk to some like constitutional experts, but my, uh, understanding of the constitution is that even if you are too young, you can run, like you could be 30 and you could run, but you could never take the office. Oh, so you could win and then go. Yeah. Basically the vice president automatically takes the office the moment that you, your team gets elected and then you wait for you to become old enough. So if I was 33 and we won two years into my presidency, the vice president would take office immediately. And then two years into my presidency, I would take over. That's my understanding. I might be wrong, but it's, it's, a, it's some, you can run. I know that part. You need have if, a babysitter. Yeah, basically that would be fun. So you've thought about this. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I thought about running when I was 30. That's right. Yeah. But I was like, how do I do this? No, fun? I did not think about how to do it. I just, it, it was just one of those things when I discovered it, I was like, Oh, that's really odd. Huh? You can run, but you can't take the office once you win. Why 35? I don't know. I don't know. Seems arbitrary to me. Haven't done enough research on that.
1: I think if they if they're going to have that bottom end thirty five, they need to have that top end and not allow.
0: Oh, you're an ageist. Huh?
1: I am definitely an ageist. Yeah. I'm I'm definitely an ageist when I look at uh, someone like Biden, who clearly cannot string a sentence together and says some really odd things. It just comes across as that he isn't uh, he isn't mentally fully there for someone holding one of the most important offices in the world?
0: I mean, it's a touchy subject, right? Like the, I say, let the voters decide, that's, that's important.
1: Um, well, then the, then, if the, then the GOP, no, the DNC, both, sorry, should let the voters decide
0: yeah. and they don't. Well, they will, they actually change. So, you know, I, I had a lot of focus on the Bernie race at one point in my life and they did Bernie wrong, um, but they have since actually changed that model a little bit. It used to be, the reason why Bernie was screwed no matter what was because they have these things called superdelegates in the Democrat party. They don't have them, they don't exist in the Republican party. Um, So backtracking a little bit, the way our elections work is that you don't win by popular vote. We've seen that both with Trump and with Bush. Neither of them got elected by popular vote. They both lost the popular vote. But yet they became president because um, we have an electoral college where each state gets a certain amount of like delegates or votes. And then they get together and whoever wins um, the appropriate number becomes president. So in the case of um, the Democrat party with, with Bernie, he, when he was running, he was getting a lot of momentum and he was put in a position where he was gonna beat Hillary or potentially beat Hillary. He was gonna beat Hillary. He, he, he might have, he might have. He would have. Um, but what ha- the, I don't think he could have, the problem is he could have never or would have never won because the, the DNC has so many super de- delegates and these super delegates are people within the party. So let's say you are you know you've worked really hard in your life um, for the DNC, you've done a lot of work for them. Um, you're like a party elite, so to speak, is what they would call it. You would be assigned as a super delegate and they have um, over a hundred I think it's like over 150 super delegates. So it's a pretty good amount. So like let's say you get to the end and Bernie's like 30, 40, 50, 100 super or 100 delegates ahead at the state vote, the DNC, has these superdelegates that can come in and vote and swing it back to Hillary. So basically once people realize that, I think they were never gonna let him win, that's really, really, like that's when he lost. It wasn't because he, he got, kept going and it was like, oh, he's, he's gonna pull it off by a, by a vote delegate or two. It was like, but even if he does, he's not, he's kind of screwed.
1: And how do the super delegate, delegates work? Is there like a, do they vote in
0: packs? So, Is
1: is there like a committee? There's a party
0: convention. Is there a whip? There's a party convention. Every four years you have a party convention and the Republicans and Democrats both have them. And it's after all of the primary votes occur for the president. You have the primary and then you have the general. So the primary is to pick who's for the party. So Democrats pick their candidate uh, and then on the Republican side, they pick their candidate. And what happens is after you go through the primary, you vote on the state level, all the different states are voting. And and then all the delegates, each state has a number of delegates that whatever the state voted, those delegates go to the party convention and they vote for the candidate that that state chose. Okay. So the party convention um, is where they decide who is going to be their candidate. It's generally speaking is a, it's kind of like more just like for fun and for show. Like it's not really that important, but in the case of like, for instance, the Bernie race where he might've actually upset Hillary Clinton and one, they have these super dele- delegates where they were able to vote and say, "Never mind, we're going to go with the the person that's chosen by the party because she was very much chosen by the party to run. It was like kind of like a coronation to, to some extent. Why? But, why did they want her? Um, I mean, she, she, for there's a few reasons why you would want Hillary to be your your nominee. She's was seen as like an extension of the Obama campaign. Um, they they viewed the Obama. Um, era as a huge success. Um, And her name, her last name is a very powerful name with a lot of name ID. Name ID is, and we can get into it a little bit, but name ID is very, very important for elections in the U.S. particularly. Working well for Kennedy right now? It's, it's, yeah, Kennedy's, yeah. Well, let's get get into name ID in a a second. But um, but what's, so they go and they vote. You know, Hillary's basically the chosen one. She gets to pick, They they want to pick her no matter what. And the change that happened, though, because there was so much backlash, they were like, oh, well, Bernie could never have won. There's no way he could have won. You guys are just, you know, it's it's all set. Why even participate? So there was this huge backlash from the voters, and they ended up changing that system. So now the party conventions, when they go to vote, the superdelegates are not allowed to participate in the first round of voting for who's going to be the candidate. So let's say there's like a tie, because you have to, I don't remember what the number is, you have to get over a certain number of delegates to be actually nominated as the um, as the candidate for the Republican or Democrat party. And if you don't get there, like if they don't hit that threshold, they'll go to a second round of voting. And then the su- that's when the superdelegates can come in. So now in some instances, people keep saying, because I looked it up, I was like, oh, Kennedy's screwed. He's gonna have the same experience as Bernie had. There's no way he can win. The superdelegates will just come in and swing the vote and he'll be screwed, he'll be done. Well, that's, an, that's another interesting point, because.
1: Yeah, I didn't even realize till recently. My, I'd made the. Was I talking to you about this? I'd made the
0: assumption that uh, Biden just carries on. No, no, they want they want that to happen. I mean, if I was a Democrat, um, in the sense that, like, you know, in, in like I was in the party, like active, highly active. Like, if I was like someone who was like, like a party elite and cared a lot about making sure that you know Biden wins again, like I would, I would basically be like, no, he's. He's it, he's our guy, we don't care. That's like a strategy, you know? You're like, meh, this guy doesn't have a chance. You're trying to make sure, you, you generally don't, so the president is not only the president of the country, he's also the leader of the party. Yep. So you don't want your leader to get struck down. I mean, that's like not usually a good, good, for, the, good for the group. Has, has
1: it ever happened that the, the president has changed but the same party has won the next ele- election? They haven't got the second term. Oh. That's a good question. That's a really good question. It's one for Danny. I don't know. Because again, like I, m- m- the, my history of US politics is every time a president served a second term, it's the same guy. Unless they've died. Yeah.
0: Like, like in a sense, like an, a new administration gets voted back into power. Like, I don't know, you have to look that up, Danny, and let us know if they've ever switched.
1: What happened with Nixon? Was, was he president at the time when he was impeached? Yeah. So, so he just he just lost the job.
0: Yeah. So they. So he 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 ended up um, in the case of Nixon. You're going to make me really go through my political uh, pop quiz here with me. So in the case of Nixon, he ended up um, what do you call it, not retiring, um, resigning, resigning, yeah, from office. Didn't go through all the way through the entire impeachment. So you can resign to avoid impeachment. Sh- yeah. I mean, he. So he was impeached. Um, they just didn't finalize so impeachment is the house gets together and they vote on whether they want to Impeach you which means that that you then you go to trial And that's a very complicated process and I think they were part; They might have been part way through the trial again. You're gonna have you're gonna make me check my um, Absolute pop quiz presidential facts here um, but I believe that he resigned before The trial itself was actually finished.
1: So do, do you think Kennedy has a chance because he I can't tell if because we're in this Bitcoin world and he said, well, I like Bitcoin, that we're seeing a different, we're seeing his kind of growth differently from, say, the general public.
0: I would say that after the Trump presidency that I don't really question someone's ability, especially when they start to gain any sort of popularity. And Kennedy definitely has gained a pretty significant amount of popularity. He... He, by many, and even myself in the beginning was like, this guy has no chance, but like, as more time goes on, I'm like, there are signs that there, that he does have a chance. Now he may lose brutally and get totally wiped out. You know, these things happen where you can gain a lot of momentum and then just kind of fumble it at the one yard line, so to speak. So I'm not saying that he's going to like, we're definitely going to go into a very highly contentious primary for the Democrats, but he does definitely have a chance. I mean, you, you'd have to be, you can't ignore some of the things that are going on with him. And he's, he's already over 20% in some polls, which is very high for someone that's challenging a sitting president in a primary. Can we, can we get the polls up? Yeah. Which, which which is a trusted poll
1: <laughs> service? Is there, is there
0: one you would yeah, say? I I, yeah, that's nobody, nobody. i <laughs> Again, and I would say, again, since the Trump presidency, that polls are kind of more like... <sighs> well, listen, the polls on Brexit told us we were staying in Europe,
1: and the polls on Trump said Hillary was gonna win. Yeah, 99 to one, Yeah, they said Hillary was gonna win, so. He, he, didn't, he didn't even have a speech ready. Yeah. Have you read the book? No. So there's this whole bit where he's like, apparently, apparently, it's like, he was shocked he won. I'm not surprised. He wasn't prepared. Apparently, he didn't have a
0: speech or something. I don't know where to go to get decent polls. I've heard that before.
1: Trump, and that's Biden and Trump.
0: There's only been Sorry. one major poll that was done to show that. This is interesting. He was Just, at 20%. So the or peop-
1: close to 20%. So, the people listening and not watching. So, Danny's got up the Biden versus Trump, and it's 43.1 to Biden, 43.2 to Trump. Is this current?
0: 13.7. Or is this 2020? I don't know. I don't know where to go to get a decent poll. That's no. 2024.
1: Yeah. Can you see Kennedy
0: in there? Yeah, you're going to have to google Kennedy versus Biden.
1: Yeah. It, but it is interesting the speed at which he yeah, has grown in popularity. And he and he also the interesting thing of I find about him, like there's things I, I disagree with him on. But he
0: seems to be attracting both Democrats and Republicans. So there's that one. That one's that one's not at close to the 20, but it's, I mean, it, like, just again.
1: Okay, so this 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 one's giving 70% to Biden, about, what would you say, 17% to yeah. Kennedy, and Marianne Williamson about 8%. Who's she? I don't even know who she is.
0: I believe she actually ran in the Republican primary last time. I'm not sure why she switched, but she's, um, I believe she's kind of like a, a woo-woo uh, practitioner, she's like very into. She's like a. She's like an author. I don't. I don't okay. know a lot about her. No, but the but the point here though is that he's gaining some momentum, and that's interesting. It's it's un, it's it's not normal for someone to gain a lot of momentum against a sitting you, president. You didn't want to say unprecedented. Unprecedented. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. And then the other thing is the is the fundraising. The fundraising is starting to pick up, because the thing about fundraising is it's all. Running for president is all a confidence game. And if you don't have confidence that someone can win, you're definitely not gonna give them any money. And they were able to raise a million dollars almost three days in a row, almost exactly. And that means that he's gaining momentum and people that believe that he has a chance. Why
1: would you not wanna give money to somebody you don't think is gonna win? Because does that money come with favors? I mean, just because you don't wanna light your money on fire, right? You light it on fire anyway.
0: Yeah, I mean, is it sunk cost? Uh, just in general, I just know that with presidential campaigns, it's really, really important to you have to raise a certain amount of money. You, there's a there's like a bare minimum threshold that you have to meet in any sort of race. But
1: they don't they raise over like a billion or something ridiculous for these things.
0: They'll spend they'll spend over a billion. Uh, yeah, can, can I think you... um, Hillary raised one point three or something like that in her recent lot when she lost in twenty twenty. She raised. One point something billion, spent one point something billion.
1: And is it all pretty much on advertising? Uh, events,
0: Campaign. advertising, so campaigning. Yeah, yeah, hiring staff. Yep. Running polls. There's all sorts of stuff okay. you can spend money on. Uh, 4.9 billion in 2020. Yeah. To- is that total? Yeah.
1: So Trump and Biden spent 2.74 billion. So the total amount spent by Trump and Biden campaigns. Hold on. It's like contradicting itself. But we're in the we're in the realm of billions. Yeah,
0: okay. well, and this is a really you know this is kind of one of the things that I originally was attracted to fixing in politics. Although I don't know if we ever will, Bitcoin might give us a chance. So in so we come back to that. So in the prime so in the primaries,
1: um, I I don't remember a scenario. I just maybe I missed it. I don't remember in the last election Trump going into primaries. I don't remember, I have no memory of that, but-
0: Oh yeah, he didn't really have a challenger, no. That's, no. That's right.
1: But the, being a challenger, does that mean there will be primary debates between
0: Biden and- That's a very interesting, that's a very good question. Um, we'll see. Can they stop it happening if they fear- yeah, So the DNC controls the debates. Generally speaking, the, the parties control the debate schedule and they have said that there will be no debates. That's not good.
1: Yeah, Because you want to see a debate
0: between Kennedy and Biden. But if you're the DNC, you do not want your current sitting party leader, who's the president of the United States, to be debated. But if you think it through, it feels to me
1: like there may... I'm not sure, I can't read it, but just there may be some momentum with the Republicans, and there may be some momentum with Trump. That means he's... like It's a genuine chance he may win again, right? Trump?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's because he's in a good position, So it's, it's
1: whether they think who's more likely to win out of Trump and Biden and Trump and Kennedy. If, if you felt like Kennedy had more chance of winning, then maybe you would want the debate.
0: I just remember that the president is the leader of the Democrat party. Yeah, I know. He, he controls it, essentially. So why would you want to be openly debated As if like there isn't real opportunity for you to be unseated. That's like kind of like almost like a weak. It's like a confidence game again. It's like you're showing weakness. But he, but he. I think you're showing weakness by not having the debate. It it could get to a point where he might be forced to have a debate. Yeah, because he
1: will have to debate Trump anyway.
0: Yes, or whoever wins the Republican primary, which will be Trump. (laughs) DeSantis seems like it. DeSantis seems like he's losing. That's the current. That's the current trend, but it can change rapidly. Do you think these, these, these things change very quickly.
1: Yeah. Do you think Gavin's waiting four years? Gavin is. Um,
0: I've heard a lot of people talk about him running. I've heard diff, varying opinions. I've heard people tell me um, that they are best friends with certain people that are running for office right now and that they said they're never gonna run and then they're running. So it's like, I just don't try, I don't, no one knows but that individual really. It's like, it's a big decision to make. Like sometimes you're sitting there going, if this happens, or if this happens, if this series of events happens, that's what's going to make, pull me into the election. So he may be looking to run now, but he might be waiting to see if, for instance, Biden is weak, or if who 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 ends up winning on the Republican side, who ends up you know taking a big lead. If there's someone that he feels like he's a bit better matchup against, he might decide to jump into the race. So there's all sorts right. of things that can impact why you would run.
1: I don't know much about him, but I have seen lots of criticism pointed towards Gavin Newsom, especially. Well, a couple of key issues, once during COVID, especially as I think when people are on lockdown, wasn't he seen in a restaurant or something? That's right. And then secondly, the energy policy they have in California because they've been having certain blackouts. But I did also see an interview with him recently. I think it might have been on Fox. It was, uh, was it Hannity interviewed him? He, he did a good job.
0: He's a good uh, policymaker in the sense, politician. He's a good politician. Yeah. He's good at politics. He's, he's very sophisticated. Yeah. I don't, I don't, like ever since Trump ran, I literally don't count anyone out unless they're just kind of like an obvious, like, you know, kooky person that's like, nah. But pre- current governor of California, that's, I mean, it's a good position. Generally people don't, generally the country doesn't like the idea of a Californian governing the whole country because they feel like they already have kind of like too much power and control. That's a, that's. I think people have actually ran polls on that, that there's like a backlash, like la- lack of interest of a Californian leading the country as a whole.
1: People probably want to know why we're talking so much about politics. The Bitcoin podcast. Yeah.
0: We should uh, talk about football
1: instead. Like what you did there. <laughs> you can come back on the show. Yeah. Um, We can talk about football. I think we can talk about politics on football. So, Dennis, people who don't know you, tell them why we're talking
0: about politics. Yeah. Well, you know, I I started this political organization uh, called Satoshi Action Fund, and I spend a lot of my time focused on politics. Uh, The last, I would say, two and a half years, I've been really focused on the intersection of Bitcoin and politics. I've been... You know, someone of a, a student, I guess you could say, someone who cares about the political space since a very young age. You know, I grew up with my dad listening to talk radio. I grew up in a very conservative family as, uh, as well. So, a lot of Sean Hannity um, and various other, you know, uh, what, um, what's that other one, the other really big one I'm trying to remember right now? He, he passed away recently. But there's a couple of really, really strong um, podcast, excuse me, um, show hosts that did talk radio on the conservative side. And my dad would always listen to them just like back and forth all the time. And every time my dad would like hem or ha or, you know, make a, oh, he'd be like, oh, pff, come on, guys, like that. Be like, oh, what's your opinion on that, dad? And he would share back and forth with me. And my dad is really smart, uh, really understood the political system very well from the bottom to the top, understood how the levers are pulled and moved around. So just learned a lot from him growing up. And I've always been fascinated by the space, Always been interested if I could have a career in the political space and I had tried a few different times to make an entry but there just never really was anything that worked well for me. 2017 I discovered bitcoin, got really into bitcoin. I I started trying to mine, started trying to teach myself how to code, none of that really worked out and was just kind of, you know, 2017 discovered it, bull run, 2018 crashed. So then I was like, well, I'll just Stay on the sidelines and kind of continue to monitor the situation, continue to learn, continue to read books. Never had an, like a public facing account at all in the space. Uh, wasn't an on for a long time. 20, that break was really important though, because between 2017 and where we are in the current phase, I ended up going to get trained to be a campaign manager and was trained to do full stack campaign management grassroots organization went on to help several different campaigns i've done everything from like opposition opposition research which is where you like tactically investigate your opponent on the other side of the aisle to find information on them that might be detrimental to their ability to win that race you
1: went look for dirt
0: mostly mostly looking for voting records like trying to find contradictions trying to see if they've said something that isn't true that's generally the the position that someone in opposition research, can, you know, is, is put in. But if you find something worse than that, you know, always helpful for the campaign. So that's yeah. In, in some senses, you would you would look for dirt on your opponent. Um, what do you think about that?
1: Part about- of, uh, as part of campaigning? Do you think because like I I I know it goes on. I know what happens. Mm-hmm. But it feels like you can campaign positively or negatively. So po- campaigning positively to me is understanding the electorate, understand their needs, what they want, and telling them what you would do for them. Mm-hmm. The negative side of that is telling you what the opposition won't do based on X, Y, Z. And I find that negative. I, I, I have a preference for the positive side of I agree. campaigning.
0: I, I prefer, I also have a tendency for the positive side. There's a couple of things though. One is that there are all sorts of different tools that you can use. In the election cycle and election process to help advantage your campaign, generally I would say it's almost always better to stay on the positive side. And there's a couple of reasons why. One is a lot of voters tend to prefer that, but also because one, let's say you lose and you got really negative that whole race, like, or maybe even when you get into office and you were really negative the whole time. Like, there's like so, sort of like negative outcomes that you produce because of that. For instance, like, people have run for office and got really negative, and they go back into the community after they lose, and pe- they just, like, they're embarrassed. Like, they ruined their entire life and all their credibility and their image because they got so negative in the campaign.
1: I, th- the, I think this is one of Trump's issues. Um, I think
0: he campaigned very negatively. A lot of people, that's how they fell. And when he got into office, you could say that that caused him some trouble. Was Yeah,
1: I think so. I, I mean, when he, you know, he, the stunts he pulled, yeah, the bringing out the... Uh, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it wasn't something to do with, like, people who'd made accusations against Bill Clinton, he had them on the front row of the debate against Hillary, or something along those mm. lines. It's not the decorum I would expect of a, of a leader. And I think what happened was the opposition, therefore, followed the same negative campaigning. And so all you heard about is all these negative things about both people, what they weren't good at. And so I think the way that harmed Trump is, you know... Whatever um, Democrat voters think of Trump, there are a large large amount of people here in the US who support him. But when you get over into Europe, you get into the UK, it's like everyone just thinks, pretty much thinks he's a moron, right? And so when you're trying to get into this, I mean, I remember at Christmas having a huge row with my brother about Trump. I was like, yeah, but he's not, you know, have you considered this? Have you looked at his, you know, policies on um, uh, reforming the prison system? You know, you can't even get to that point where you're trying to have these sensible discussions yeah. about the good things he stands for, or the things he is wise about or smart about, because they've just got such a negative view. And I, so I just don't like that negative
0: campaigning. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I'm also, I think it's I bad for everyone. I don't like it either. But, but, the, but you did it. <laughs> It was, a, it was a very short period in my life. Uh, probably. I would say it was like my first job in the, cre- in the political space. What was that stuff we dug up on Dennis? <laughs> yeah, gotta go find it, gotta look it up. You could hire me to do it. I'm really good at it. Um, so then one of the, one of the things I, I think is important when you're running for office is knowing what the tools are that are available to you. You don't necessarily use all of them, but you should be ready if necessary to use them. It's almost like you're in a battle and you don't want to be the guy that runs negatively. But to some extent, there are points when if you are getting attacked, um, you might want to utilize that tool in order to kind of match the other person. Because typically once they start getting into the mud, like if you don't find a way to, to hit back and do it tactically, we're not talking about making, this is, this, let's, there's a clear difference, I think that's important. One is, you know, making stuff up, lying about your opponent. I definitely think that, that that sort of behavior is like abhorrent and that's not the type of like work that my that I would do in the past but if someone says hey i voted in favor of this and this and this and this and that's why you should vote for me it's like well if you're pinning your whole election on that in a debate you know you might want to know that information that they ne- they didn't vote for those things and they're just straight up lying to the american people that's not really like getting in the dirt that's not slandering your opponent that's just p- plainly pointing out facts that that they are not being honest with the, the American public. And it's good in a debate, you could be like, you know, you, you get that information, you have it. And then when they say again, I did this, I voted for this and this and this, and you can be like, actually, we have your vote tally right here and you did not vote for those those issues. You, okay, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of more of the approach of opposition research, not necessarily, you know, trying to find out whether they, there was some like extramarital activity and exposing them for it. I think that you should definitely keep family behavior and that sort of thing out of elections.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, one of those tools, feels like one of those tools now is Bitcoin. Like we talked about mm.
0: earlier, it's the cheat
1: code. And we noticed it. We noticed it about, about a year and a half ago, uh, we started to get regularly contacted by politicians, people who are running for Congress, who wanted to come to the podcast because they're, say they're Bitcoiners and every interview would be the same. So, we stopped doing them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's different if if we got the opportunity to interview DeSantis or Kennedy because these are real contenders. And, uh, but it just feels like, I mean, currently every nominee that we're aware of DeSantis, Kennedy, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, mm-hmm. if I get that correct, they're all pro Bitcoin. Or well, they say they are. Or they say they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's a really important point. Well, so I feel like the, the real letdown was Eric Adams who came out as pro, massively pro-Bitcoin and then immediately took office in New York and kind of did a 180, maybe a 170, 160.
0: You can usually tell when people are just using you know, what, what you call lip service in politics. Uh, and actually from a very early stage, I, this is about two and a half years ago, two years ago when I started trying to help move or grease the tracks for the political space with Bitcoin and get more politicians in and help them understand Bitcoin and help them to support it. I knew that, that we would start to travel on a very interesting trajectory. And along that trajectory, I wanted to make sure that Bitcoiners knew how important it was to demand more out of their elected officials. Because as an example, there are many politicians who target varying groups in the in the world, in the space, varying voting blocks, whether they be the black community, whether they be the LGBT community, um, it could be the conservatives, it could be the evangelicals, whatever, there's all sorts of different voting blocks out there. And what will happen oftentimes is you'll have elected officials who will play lip service. They will say, oh, this, I support you. They'll use the right language. There's usually a language that every voting block has. You know, in the Bitcoin community, you know, we have all sorts of different languages, proof of work, HODL, um, you know, NGU, right? Like we, these are words that you don't, probably a bunch of people listening right now are like, what the hell is he talking about? But if you are in Bitcoin, you understand those words like this. Hmm. So if you get good at saying those words, and speaking the right way, it's very easy to convince a community to support you. In the Bitcoin space, it started off with just a politician putting hashtag Bitcoin in their bio. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Thousand, you see tweets, you know, someone would take a photo of it, screenshot, put it on Twitter. Oh my gosh, this candidate running for office, not even an elected official, this candidate running for office is, they're pro Bitcoin, how amazing. Well, that's great, but that's kind of a form of lip service. And that's why I wanted to make sure that Bitcoiners know To constantly demand more out of people that do use the the Bitcoin cheat code. So we're transition, we have transitioned from you know hashtag Bitcoin to tweeting about Bitcoin, where politicians would tweet about it. Boom, that blows up. And that would be, you know, candidates. Now it's like, oh, if someone's now we have learned when someone's running for, oh, it's just a candidate. We shouldn't even pay attention to them. That's not enough for us now. And then it was introducing policy. We saw all sorts of Policy introductions occur. Oh my gosh, Pro Bitcoin bill, boom, bi- taking off. And then people realized, oh, it's just an introduction. It doesn't mean anything. It's not a law. Nothing's happened. And the bitcoiners are constantly demanding more. And now we're starting to see that it's not good enough just to have hashtag Bitcoin. It's not good enough to tweet about Bitcoin. It's not good enough to be talking about Bitcoin publicly. You need to introduce policy and pass policy. In order to get the support of the Bitcoin community, which I think that's really important because what's the ultimate goal of any sort of political effort is to pass policy. Because if you haven't actually had a real world impact, then what's the point? You're just it's just all lip service.
1: And to those Bitcoiners who have previously said, ignore the politicians, they don't matter, just keep building, forget about it. What do you say to that? Because I've seen like me and Danny have talked about this. We we talked about it months ago. We were like Fair play to Dennis. Dennis is, like, having real-world impact. Uh, I remember seeing Pierre Rochard retweet something that you'd done. You know, Pierre is a hard nut to crack. And when you've earned Pierre's respect, you've obviously done something highly credible and we were, we were there we cuz you know we knew you previously as a, somebody who was doing a podcast we're like oh, here we go
0: failed podcast another
1: another upstart yeah, no, yeah. podcast another challenger squash this one another raw school coming <laughs> coming at us but no no we, we, you and i've uh, always taken the piss out of each other but like always liked you but like you started to have some material impact we're like yeah, fair play this is this is actually impressive so do those people that's me that's my perception i do think you should engage with politicians i do think we should try and Help them understand, so they don't write bad policy. But other people think just ignore them.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's not the right approach at all, in my opinion. I, I think it's really important to engage politically. It, it, it's, I mean, just look at some examples, like for instance, in El Salvador, like this, none of that would be happening if there wasn't sort of po- some sort of political effort. I think people are just kind of maybe turned off to the word politics, yeah, and political, and politician. I, it's oftentimes why you hear me say things like policymaker, maker, lawmaker, uh, elected official, instead of those words, because they seem to be kind of cursed. cursed. They are cursed words. Um, if you want your country, if you want your state and you want your city and you want your community and you want your family to benefit from Bitcoin, then you should want the whole world to move the right direction on Bitcoin. And that would include the place that you live. So if you are thinking, you know, I wish where I lived was better for Bitcoin. You need to, you have to engage politically. You have to be participating in the political system. And it, I would challenge people who say that we should ignore politics, um, who also are supportive of the U.S. Constitution to think about how politically engaged those founding fathers were. The founding fathers were extremely politically engaged. I don't think you could possibly be more politically engaged than they were at that point in history. And they went on and they fought for independence and 10 years later, you know, the United States was free. It only took a decade to go from being under the thumb of the king to being a wholly free and independent nation. I mean, I I thought you were
1: disrespectful to our (laughs) king. (laughs) You know, my I, bad. We raised you, yeah. We fed you. That's right. We gave you tea. And what did you do to us? We poured that tea right in the harbor. You threw it right into Boston Harbor. Yeah. And you know what? Fuck you guys.
0: Hey, well, at least we're good. <laughs> we're good allies now.
1: We are good allies. And you know what? In fairness, you got rid of us for a two percent tea tax, and you've kept your tax rates low, especially in California.
0: Yeah, they're super low. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm from Portland, Oregon. We have really, really low taxes. It's the best taxes in the whole country. Is that true? No. Is it the worst? It's not as bad as California. It's pretty high though. Yeah. I would say that it's also a, like on the thing of tax, like I'm not anti-tax. I just, there's a, misalloc- a pretty significant misallocation of capital in government when it comes to everything programs, which is to be expected kind of, you're almost like the price for making sure stuff gets done no matter what is that it's expensive.
1: This show is brought to you by Ledger. Now Ledger is the world's leader in Bitcoin security and it's the best way for you to own and secure your private keys. If you are still holding Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be time for you to take your Bitcoin security a little more seriously because remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Now Ledger hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way for you to start managing your private keys. You can send and sign your Bitcoin transactions with full transparency in the Ledger Live app and honestly, it couldn't be easier. I've been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I'm still using the same Nano S I bought back then. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P com. Next up today, we have Iris Energy. Now, Iris is the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. Their strategy is to target markets with low-cost, excess renewable energy, and they build their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers. They are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure, and digital assets. And Danny and I met them recently in Canada and were super impressed with Iris Energy and their values, which align with us. So they're a great fit for what Bitcoin did in you, the listeners. Now, we are going to be working with Iris Energy on everything from the podcast to films to live events. And they're either sponsoring my football team, Rail Bedford. So we're really happy to be working with such a forward thinking and sustainable Bitcoin mining company. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y.co. Also, today we have Leaden. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin has a robust risk management strategy and always prioritizes safeguarding clients' assets with no DeFi yield farming. And Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby twenty four seven, Leden is there to support all your needs. And not only is Leden a sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Leden.io, which is L-E-D-N.io. I mean, I, again, I agree with you. I think we should engage with politicians. I I wish we had a Satoshi Action Fund in the UK because we don't.
0: Well, Freddie, let's be fair to Freddie. Freddie's Freddy's Do you know Freddie? New working on it. Yeah. Had a call. Freddie um, seems like they've got some great. He's he's got a background. He understands the system. So it seems like they're in a good position.
1: So I think we're lucky to have people like him and yourself doing this. But I I agree, we should be engaging. We should be encouraging this because we do not want bad policy. We do want. We do not want bad law. And you are making significant progress. But can I just backtrack a second? Because you talk about voting blocks. Uh, So the Bitcoiners are a significant voting block now. Mm -hmm. And quite an interesting one is that they, you know, I can imagine voting blocks are... No, no, actually, I think what I'm going to say is wrong. Because you talked about, like, the Hispanic voting block. And they can swing, I guess, between... Democrat, Republican. Oh yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the, 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 the um, President Abraham Lincoln was the president who freed the slaves and he was a Republican in the sense that he, you know, he fought the Civil War and part of why the Civil War was fought was pretty big reason was over slavery. And now the Democrats are the ones that have all of the black community and supporting them. So people switch very aggressively, pretty regularly all the time.
1: And so the, the Bitcoin voting block is obviously an important voting block, but it seems to be. I know Kennedy, but he's, a, he's certainly an oddball uh, in certain ways. And I, I don't mean that him, his personality, I mean in that he uh, seems to a, be attractive to both Democrats and Republicans. He seems towards the center on certain issues. Um, but it, it seems to me that it's been much more uh, on the side of the Republicans who've taken an interest in Bitcoin. And I know we're seeing a change on the Democrat side. You've made some progress. You've been uh, getting uh, Jason's book out there to be read by people. But historically, why do you I think- heard it, it has a great forward. I think it's brilliant, the forward, personally. Have you read it? Because I thought ChatGPT did it. Well, it was a mixture of ChatGPT. <laughs> so I don't actually write anything anymore. Everything I write, I get ChatGPT to structure it. Of
0: course. What I do is actually, you know, this is a really good trick is you write it out. Like you take your first draft and you just do it. Like you don't, don't be super judgmental. Don't care what, how it sounds like. Cause normally you have to be like really crafted and really go through and make sure it's, it's balanced and, and everything kind of is cohesive. What I'll do is I'll write something and then I'll put it through the thing and give it a prompt and say, Hey, you know, spruce this up for me. Cause (laughs) then it gets, it actually starts to like. Understand your voice a little better because if you just say write this thing for me, it, it has none of your voice in it
1: Huh, that's interesting. So I don't uh, what I do is I say All right, I need to write a forward for a book. I want it to be 1200 words long. I want the intro to be structured around This mm-hmm. yeah, so it might be a generic introduction to why you know Bitcoin is important to uh, uh, Democrat voters. I then want to go through the arguments. These are my arguments. And I want my conclusion to be structured like this. Yeah. And so it's probably like a three, four paragraph prompt. I get it. And I take that and then I rewrite that because usually it's more than 50, 60% wrong. But I, the, I like the structure. It always seems to give me a very, very good structure. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that's great. That is structurally correct. So then I just rewrite it and then I put it through Grammarly to make sure my. Grammar and spelling is correct. Well, it'll do that too. Yeah, Grammarly I think does a better job. Okay. Yeah, but um, but I'm I'm mainly using ChatGPT to give me structure, not not to give me arguments. I already knew my arguments I wanted to write in that forward. Um, I mean, there was one key argument really. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, I like AI. I, I think it's the interesting thing is it's going to get more and more sophisticated over a very short period of time. I think it's overhyped right now. But I don't, you know, in the sense that like people are like, oh, it's going to change the world. I don't think it's there yet. But but the thing is that it changes so rapidly that it it probably will get closer to that sort of vision than what people had spoken about the Internet. Like in the beginning of the Internet days, people were, oh, my gosh, it's going to do all these amazing things. And it took like 20, 30 years for it to take place. I think the AI curve will happen much faster. I use it nearly every day. That's what I heard you say that on one of your shows yeah, recently. I, I, don't, I never listened to your show, but I heard that one. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, I use it for, like I say, uh, press releases, a policy. We needed a policy for my football club. It wrote the entire policy. I said, write a, uh, uh, what was it? It was like a non-discrimination policy for a football club that follows the football association's guidelines. It literally wrote it within seconds. That's great. Uh, I'm now using it for design concepts.
0: We, using we, we use it for research.
1: There you go. And you Are you using it? I, I I think I've kind of stopped using it a little bit. Okay. I, it's
0: kind of fallen out of my my habits. Connor's Con using it? Con is, yeah, for, for editing it's pretty good.
1: Yeah, Connor's using it for editing.
0: Yeah, we use it for um so we one of the things that we did at Satoshi Action was when we were going through the process of trying to pass policy and law, we found that there was like va- basically no research on Bitcoin mining. Like there's some, but in comparison to, you know, other industries, there's not very much at all. And so about But four months ago, we launched Satoshi Action Education, which is our research arm. And just fortuitously, like simultaneously, a gentleman named Dr. Murray Rudd happened to reach out to me just out of nowhere on Twitter, like, and on 300, like less than 300 followers, like, hey, said just enough. Like I read pretty much all my DMs. I don't respond to all of them because just that would be insane. But I read most of them, even the ones that are like in the garbage box. I'll just quick check it, see if it, I can tell really fast. Yeah. Because I've done it so many times. I can tell quickly if it's scam or not. And uh, Dr. Rudd was like, hey, you know, I've seen your work and I wanna talk to you about research. And so we got on a call, we started talking and he came on as our our science lead, science director for Satoshi Action Education pretty quickly. And at the same time, like the AI hadn't even been out yet, but he had already been playing around with like very rudimentary kind of AI stuff. And then it really started to take off and now he's been using it full time. I think, I mean, we have, I don't know if we can, I don't want to announce anything, but we've been doing some like data crunching on one of the key question exercises that we're working on right now, which is essentially an exercise to bring together policymakers, industry, and academia to determine like, what are the actual questions that we need to answer in the research world? Because oftentimes, you know, there's plenty of smart people who could go, oh, we need to answer this question. We need to answer that question in the Bitcoin space. But there are an infinite amount of researchers outside the Bitcoin space that might want to do good Bitcoin research but there's no sort of guidepost or um, research agenda for them to look at and go, oh, that's what needs to be answered. That's the, that's the place where we're gonna have the most high impact. When it comes to research, researchers always wanna have the highest impact possible because citations are really important to them. You need more citations to grow your career and you need multiple papers with a bunch of different citations. There's this thing called the H index. You can look it up on Google Scholar. Every, every single academic has a score and that tracks their citations. And you want your citations to go up, but you also want your H index to go up as well. And it's very hard to get your H index to go up. And so you're, when you look for what kind of research you wanna do, you want research that is gonna be cited a lot. And so that's why we're doing this key question exercise to put out that agenda, so that researchers across the globe really can see what are the most important questions to be answered, so that when they actually go do their research and answer them, they'll be rewarded with citations and with career career growth. because. Academics are not incentivized by money; they are incentivized by the growth of their careers in the academic sphere. And in that, and money helps that. Money is good to help them do their work, but it's only a very small part of what they really want, which is more citations and um, more a higher impact score, so that they can get brought into you know higher positions and get tenure and stuff like that. So,
1: going back to Satoshi Action Fund, do you? Have you outlined your goals? Do you have like a constitution or do you have like a, I don't know, a mission statement? What is it?
0: I would say that the shortest way to describe what we're trying to do is to change the narrative on Bitcoin mining. Oh, just mining? Yeah, that's, I mean, we do care a lot about Bitcoin, but we're very, very focused on Bitcoin mining. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's a huge focus for us. The main, There's a couple of reasons why, but that's, yeah. The main one I would say really is that about two years ago, two and a half years ago, I was putting on my political hat and thinking, okay, where can we have the biggest potential impact in America, positive impact? What industry will have that? What part of Bitcoin will have that? And I believe that that's Bitcoin mining. And then also, what simultaneously, I believe that 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 industry will be the most attacked. Hmm. And that was two and a half years ago. You could already kind of see that picking up.
1: And if you get that right, if you win on the mining, you kind of, by virtue of that, you're gonna win for Bitcoin anyway. I assume a lot of the conversations, if they're about Bitcoin mining, you still have to talk about Bitcoin. So you you're doing the entire job in one.
0: Yes, but also the reason why we focus on Bitcoin mining is because it has something to offer that policymakers understand right now. So if you try to pitch someone Bitcoin, what are you gonna say? Like why do why does the United States really need Bitcoin? That's a good question. It what's like it. what's like the go to answer? Like what what why what is bitcoin going to replace the government (laughs) or the dollar like (laughs) it's always some sort of like you're on like this rabbit hole of like oh actually it's going to uh get rid of the dollar i don't don't think personally i don't think that bitcoin is going to get rid of the dollar anytime soon if, if ever um but that's usually like they're like well because your currency sucks well to be honest the united states currency really doesn't suck that bad um it's the best fiat currency we've ever had pretty much in human history and i know that it's going through a lot of trouble right now but it's it's still way better than Argentina or Zimbabwe, where they are dealing with multi, triple digit inflation, right? So, wh- wh- when you're pitching Bitcoin to a policymaker, like, what are you actually selling them on? Like, tw- maybe in 50 years, the dollar will go away. That's not a really big winning pitch for people. So, yeah, instead, what we focus on is Bitcoin mining, because I can say that Bitcoin mining can provide jobs local investment, grid stability, environmental cleanup, and the ability to enhance green and renewable energy projects. And there's not a policymaker on the planet who doesn't hear those things and go, I want those things. You've said that before a few times, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Thousands of times. Yeah, it's good though.
1: Can you talk me through any specific examples where you've gone into someone who, yeah, really doesn't understand Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining, anti-Bitcoin, have you fully flipped anyone?
0: They've gone, holy shit, I didn't even know all this. We have not focused strategically on people that are enemies of Bitcoin mining. Okay. We focus on people who are in the middle and who are open to it. Okay. So I don't spend a lot of time trying to... It's like, what? have you heard that... that um, it's like saints and sinners. You ever heard of that before? It's like, you know, or there's the, the attractors or detractors. You ever mm, heard of that? Yeah. Where it's like, you don't ever want to spend time going after your detractors because they just they're your haters, like they're not going to, it will take a lot of work to convince them to be on your team. So yeah. what you wanna do is- Forget Elizabeth Warren. Just let her let Elizabeth Warren do her thing. She's not really gonna probably pass anything right now. She gets to do some body damage um, in the uh, social sphere by convincing people that Bitcoin mining is bad for the environment. She's wrong, but she that's what she's doing right now. Um, what you wanna do is you wanna spend time with attractors or people that are open or people that are in the middle. And, and you wanna turn those people in the middle into attractors as quickly as possible. And oftentimes what you can do is if you build enough of uh, uh, momentum around attractors and neutrals that have, you've pulled to attractors, if you build enough of a firewall, you can prevent the detractors from doing anything negative.
1: Okay, so where have you had success
0: with that then? So was for, for us, we started in, <laughs> And we start at the state level, so this is really important. Part um, everyone gets really focused on DC for obvious reasons. You know, it's the it's the political capital, political powerhouse of the, pretty much the entire world, it, it, definitely the United States. So it draws a lot of energy into itself, and it does a very good job. And I mean, energy in the sense like um, attention. It do, they do a very good job of f- kind of forcing you to do that because they'll do stuff that'll just destroy you overnight. So you got to sometimes you are forced to pay attention. Fortunately, right now in the digital asset Bitcoin space, we are in an era where they care a lot more about you know, market structure, securities, uh, stable coins. Those are the things that are being focused on in DC. And they're not really hyper-focused on Bitcoin mining. You might hear Elizabeth Warren say something about it, you might hear a committee hap- you know, take place where they talk about Bitcoin mining, but there's no sort of like large movement to change policy around Bitcoin mining. But there is a lot with stable coins, with the SEC, CFTC, you know, is it a commodity? Is it a security? That's the big conversation right now. So we're kind of like under the radar in DC. So in some senses, it's good to be there and educate, which we do. I was just there handing out 700 Bitcoin books to every member of Congress um, in every single congressional office. And I've done a a briefing in DC before where I- How,
1: like how are you giving everyone a book? Well, got, walk me through how you literally give everybody a book
0: <laughs> so you get volunteers and you you raise money online and you go and you walk through the entire building and hand them out
1: yeah, but how, like how do you know where everyone is
0: well the great thing about American's political system is it's very permissionless so you can just walk in and go to every office
1: so for every member of congress you can just do they all have an office in yes. what building?
0: there's multiple buildings so you have there's I believe two Senate buildings, is that right? And then three House buildings. Huh. So they're right around the Capitol, and they all connect with tunnels to the main Capitol too. And so, what book did you give them? Uh, we had the Bitcoin standard, we had layered money, and we also had a progressives case for Bitcoin.
1: Okay, you didn't have a Republicans case for Bitcoin. We don't need that one right now. You don't now. need that. One. Not
0: right now. That's the Bitcoin Re- standard. A lot of yeah, that's basically right. that's right. A lot of Republicans. Um, especially Republican leaders are talking enough about Bitcoin right now that I don't think that we need to spend time.
1: So you knock on the door and you say, hey, I've got a, big, I've got a book for you. And are, yep. you, are you really talking to staffers or you actually, do you actually meet the members
0: of Congress? Both. Both, okay. Yeah. And to be honest, staffers are probably the most important. This is one thing that people, and I think someone has said this on your show before, yeah. that staffers actually run the world. So the world is actually run by a bunch of 20 to 35-year-old uh, staffers that work in these offices. Because you, as an elected official, especially let's say like a senator, you don't have time to research and study every single little bit of what's out there. I mean, you have to worry about the border, the war, you know, you have to worry about healthcare, you have to worry about the shutdowns. You know, there's this Bitcoin thing, and you're like, oh, right, that's cool. But unless you're like a lummus, you know, your office is probably not going to spend, or you as an individual are probably not going to spend a whole lot of time studying and researching it.
1: I uh, do you know, when I interviewed Cruz, it felt like he had. Cruz, Dude, so, he blew my mind for that, how much he knew about Bitcoin.
0: Cruz is interesting. I think he's one of those people that, he definitely has people on his team that are, that understand, so this is, again, this is the, whole, the point I'm trying to make. His a staff, his team came to him and educated him on it. So he had really good staff that was able to do that. Yeah. And that's why it's really important to go in and educate the staff on the value of Bitcoin, the technology because what they will do is they'll turn around and they'll tell the senator, hey, you should you should take a look at this. This is really good.
1: And when you're handing out the books, is it just one book each and you're deciding which one's best for each office or?
0: Yeah, it, generally speaking. So some offices we gave two books to. We had to be careful because there's a $50 gifting limit on the Senate side. We just did that arbitrarily across the whole thing. So there's gifting limits for pretty much um, anything that you give to public officials. On the House side, technically there's no sort of price limit on books if they're considered educational, but we just decided, let's be, let's be strict um, instead of loose with this rule and let's stick to the $50 limit. So we only gave two books to everyone no matter what, um, to make sure that we were really, really far below that. Most people just got the Bitcoin standard. But if like we went to Democrat offices, we would give them a progressive case. And in some, in in some instances um, we had some people go and give out all the Bitcoin standards and then someone else came back later and gave. A progressive's case to make sure that we were really like saturating with that book. And and when you're knocking on the door,
1: are you literally knocking on the door and someone's going, Oh, hi, who
0: the the hell are you? And you're like, I want to give you a book. You can knock, you can just walk in. You just walk in. It's a big office. Like you'll walk in, it's a big office. There's someone right at the front that's like, Hey, how can I help you? And you're like, I want to give you a book and
1: tell you about Bitcoin and why it's important, why you should care about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, you don't want to spend. So if you haven't set up a meeting, which we did set up a bunch of meetings where we were actually went in and we're like, Hey, we're here to give a book and we want to sit you know, down with so-and-so that we agreed to meet with, whether that, in some cases, that was an elected official. In other cases, it was just like the lead person. Like most, op- this is a really interesting part. Most offices have someone who's dedicated to their digital assets now.
1: Oh, wow, okay, I didn't, did not know
0: that. They might be strictly dedicated, or they might be like, it might be part of their por- portfolio. Staffers will be, ident- will be assigned a specific portfolio of work. So they might do banking or they might do um, SEC stuff or they might do financial stuff. They might do agriculture. They might do transportation, whatever. Digital assets now is one. There's nobody's like, and people are like, well, why don't they have a Bitcoin person? It's like, it. they don't really differentiate too heavily in DC. That's one thing that people need to kind of understand that probably, that will likely not ever happen. Yeah, because they have to write policy for all of it. Yes, and also I don't think that, Stablecoins coins are going anywhere, that's considered to be a digital asset. You know, what are we gonna have our, I don't know what's gonna survive. Listen, I'm Bitcoin only, but I don't know what else is gonna survive. But if there's anything more than Bitcoin, it's now officially digital assets, so.
1: Okay, and so when you're knocking on the door and you're having the conversations, you're way beyond the point of what is Bitcoin? Explain it to me, like everyone knows about it, it exists.
0: Oh yeah, everybody knows about it in DC.
1: Yeah, and are you pleasantly surprised about how much they know about it sometimes?
0: Um, there are some times we'll, we'll go into offices and we'll go, we'll be really surprised. We'll be like, oh, wow, they really know a lot. That's awesome. And we have a great conversation. We spoke with a rep from Florida recently, a sta- our staffer from that office. And he was particularly very interested in Bitcoin mining and talked about how his boss was leaning into energy and how they were going to do a, a op ed on nuclear and how he's super supportive of nuclear energy. And so you do have instances like that. Like the worst case scenario is you'll go in, you'll be like, hey, I'm here to hand off this book. Thank you so much. Um, have you had an opportunity to learn about Bitcoin yet? And they're just like, "Yep, thank you so much. Bye." Like, okay, you know, you will get that, but it's all about like, it's like fishing. Yeah. So whenever you go and you do these kind of mass meetings or mass drop-offs, you are fishing for the person that is an attractor. Yeah. But you don't know who they are yet, so you look. You're out there looking, and we've had this happen in multiple times where we found that this is a very good strategy. Oftentimes people won't pursue this strategy because it's a lot of work to set up a, you know, 20 volunteers to do 700 books and raise $10,000 online through Geyser to do that, which was really cool. We used uh, the Geyser Lightning um, fundraising software for the first time ever. So that was cool. And also I got to give a shout out to the orange pill app guys. Cause they were the ones that instigated the nice. whole thing with I love those safe, guys. safe, safe Safedine, Yeah. They, safe Dean, they wanted Safedine on the app. So they basically bought his, um, appearance on the app by saying, hey, we'll send a book to everyone in DC if you come on the app. And then I about halfway through raising the money, I was like, hey, why don't we just do this in person? So I've got to give them a shout out because they were the ones that it wouldn't it would not have happened without them.
1: So. Mateos.
0: Mateo. Mateo, yeah. sorry. Mateo, yeah. And Brian Demint.
1: I've only spoke with Mateo. Uh, yeah. they sponsor the football team now.
0: That's they're they're cool guys. I like him. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cool app. It is. Yeah. They had our event on there that for that.
1: Yeah. Um Okay, so so you go fishing, you catch a good fish. What now? What, yes. What you're like, what, what's your goal? What's your objective? Are you just building
0: allies? So in the case of DC... What's a win? Uh, uh, in the case of DC, so we're not trying to lobby for policy right now. Our focus is on trying to make sure that we get them involved in the key question exercise that we're, we're pursuing, the one I mentioned to you earlier. So the key questions exercise is really to, like as I mentioned, to create a research agenda for Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. And you want them to participate in that process because what will happen is as you're doing the research, you can get well, two techn- potentially two things to happen. They might actually get involved in writing a paper and become a co-author. But the real impact that you wanna have is that they will absorb the research that you're doing and use it to influence policy decisions. Like, for instance, what they wanna write and talk about in an OSTP report or an EPA report, or when they wanna craft what is acceptably accepted for any sort of like green energy tax credits. Like, you wanna make sure that Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining is included in that. So that's the, the, the end game is impact policy, but we need to have those relationships and then get them plugged into what we're doing and, and for them to see the work that's going on and then use that work and that research to influence public policy.
1: So at the moment, you're, you're really just kind of, it's like a, scatter like you say, fishing, scattergun approach. You're just trying to move the needle forward with as many people as possible. But when the time comes, hopefully you will have built enough allies where if you do want to get into policy, you know the support will be there.
0: That's part of it. Um, fortunately, like I said, we're really focused on CFTC, SEC. Market structure work right now in DC. In the long run, though, there will definitely be conversations that we want to influence as it pertains to Bitcoin mining, particularly energy conversations. You know, we really want to see FERC uh, start to understand Bitcoin mining as the you know as a demand response resource. Uh, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. They're the ones that oversee all of the RTOS and ISOs in the country. So, RTOs, talk- ISOs, come on, man. You've talked to. <laughs> You've talked to Sean Connell a lot about yeah. this. So there are seven RTOs and ISOs, uh, regional transmission organization, independent system organization, and they, or is it operator, I- either way, they they oversee the grid. So ERCOT is yeah. an RTO, and they see oversee the grid in Texas, but you have seven of them all over the whole country. Not all of the country is inside of an RTO or an ISO, which is an important link back to the fact that we do state work, which we should probably talk about because it's the majority of our work. Um, but FERC oversees six out of those seven. The only one they don't oversee is ERCOT. And that's really important because ERCOT has kind of stood up as this place where we're te- it's like a test bed for Bitcoin mining. But that would be less likely to take place if it was underneath FERC. So FERC governs the other ones. So what is the primary incentive for these
1: offices that you're talking to? Yeah, where are you going to win them? Where are you going to convert them?
0: The primary objective for us and where we think we're going to win them is that Bitcoin mining is an important piece of energy infrastructure that can aid in the, in the energy transition.
1: And, and that is working then?
0: Yeah, that, I mean, that's where we're in the beginning phases of that conversation with a lot of offices. So you
1: must have, because it is that kind of wow moment where you really start to understand what's happening with the grid, say, with a cop. Um, we saw that amazing graph. I think it was Sean Connell as well who showed us where it was the uh, demand response, and you know the graph was once the price hits a certain point, yeah, the miners are switching off automatically. I think Lee Bratcher actually said to us, he said uh, uh, it worked so perfectly that the grid was actually panicking because the miners hadn't switched off in time, but they need they needed to in the future, but actually they they switched off at the exact time they needed them but they wanted them to almost just switch ahead, uh, off ahead of time because they were so panicked.
0: Yeah, well, there's not really many resources that can respond like Bitcoin mining. So they yeah. get nervous if they're they're like, aren't you gonna respond yet? You're like, well, we don't need to yet. Yeah. And they're like, well, you're getting really close. You should do it.
1: But it's, but, but it's a real wow moment when you start to see this and you start to understand the role this plays. And it's, it's I think it's one of the coolest things that's come out of Bitcoin that, yeah, here we go. Yeah. So this is the chart. Uh,
0: this is, this chart is actually in our, um, so we do it, a briefing, we have a forty to fifty minute presentation that we do for staffers and elected officials, and we use a lot of lanceum charts in there
1: yeah, and so are you are you kind of blowing their minds when you explain this and show they're like I, we had no idea
0: it's more like a cautious skepticism because they're just like okay they so the thing is that they've been trying to figure out how to do this for a long time, uh, people in the energy world have been trying to figure out how to create more flexible load on the grid. If you go to any utility right now in the entire country and you ask them what is one of the most important types of loads that you wanna bring on to your grid and they're gonna tell you it's flexible load. But the problem is nobody wants to shut off their power. right? So how do you bring in more flexible load? Well, some I, the, the one of the main ideas right now is to create flexibility at the residential level where you'll have a smart water heater, you'll have a smart thermostat, and whenever you sign up for the program, of course it's opt in, we hope for now, um, you opt into these programs. And when they send a signal, they can shut down or like moderate down your air conditioner or moderate down your, your heater or whatever it is that you've, that you've signed up for. The problem with those sorts of resources is that they, uh, as an, on an individual basis, it's not a lot of power. As a whole, it's, it's a lot. Like, right if you have a whole city that's signed up that's quite a bit of power but the response rates are low and they actually diminish as you get further into an emergency situation so also you don't really want some centralized no. entity powering down your aircon no this and we found that that's true that there's a is a very there's a very rapid breakdown on how many people will stay in the program depending on how long the response goes on. So like, let's say Texas, you have Texas, you have ERCOT, winter storm Elliott came through and the, you know, the grid is gonna call out for people to turn their power down. Well, it's it's a winter storm, it's an emergency. You're like, you're trying to stay alive. You're not gonna keep your heat off for more than like a little bit of time. Eventually what happens that first day, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm okay on the first day, get into the second day, eh, third day, you're, you are, you're, you're not responding anymore. You're like, I'm opting out of this program. Where with the Bitcoin miner, it's like, it's a, it's 96 plus percent we saw during winter storm elliot which is extremely high response rate and it's a lot of power and there's no other load like it batteries can do some of the same thing but there's a there's, there's a lim- limitation there's a right? limitation because you can only absorb and distribute so much power um what one really interesting thing that happened to me at one point and this is when I realized that we're we're on the right track is i got a former FERC economist to get on a phone with me. He had just retired. Uh, Oftentimes when you retire from government, you're looking for consulting jobs. So they will start to take calls when they retire because they might want to get a consulting gig out of it. Um, I didn't realize that until after I'd done that a few times to people who were retiring. I was like, every time they were like, by the way, I'm consulting now. I was like, oh, that's why you're taking the call. Okay. Another cheat code. Yeah, another cheat code. So got on a phone with a former FERC economist, spent 20 plus years at FERC. He was. You, they have orders. FERC, FERC puts out an order. Same with utilities. They're all called orders. It's not a law. It's not an act. It's an order. Once, you get, once it gets signed and put into, I don't know if you call it a law. It's like once it gets put into effect. So at FERC, there are the, a lot of the laws around demand response are generated through FERC. For instance, you cannot force someone to participate in demand response without just compensation. That's a FERC order. So you can't be like, hey, you have to participate in demand response, but we're not going to pay you for it. So, the guy that was the brainchild and was the main guy behind all of that, he had retired. And so, I got him on a call and I said, hey, you heard about Bitcoin mining. He's like, I have heard about Bitcoin mining. And I said, did you know that it's really a good demand response resource? And he's like, I've heard stories. He's like, let me ask you three questions, though, about Bitcoin mining. And I'll tell you if, it, if I think it's a good demand response resource. He said, does it use a lot of power? I said, yep, it uses a lot of power. And then he said, does it want to be on all the time? if given the opportunity. And I said, yep, wants to be up on all the time, 24 seven running if possible. He said, but then simultaneously, most importantly, I can shut it down whenever I want. And I said, yep, it's extremely flexible. You can shut it down at any time and for any length. And he said, if what you're saying is true, then Bitcoin mining is the best demand response resource on the planet. But well, this is what Sean Connell said to us, didn't they? Mm-hmm. He
1: said, I can't remember what it was, wasn't there some like report or something that said, this is the requirement we have for de- demand response and Bitcoin mining was the only service that could fulfill all the requirements. It every box, yeah. Where did that come from? I can't remember exactly. Yeah, there was like some kind of, it might have been FERC or somebody who'd written this kind of what they need from demand if response.
0: You, if you look at what they need from demand response, it's literally like they're describing Bitcoin mining.
1: So we have this perfect answer. Yeah that we have to just get around people's uh, pre-built uh, biases. We've got to get around that,
0: which it, I guess you're doing. That's one of our main objectives is education on Bitcoin mining. Yeah, this is it. Yeah. We, use, we use this one too in our... <laughs> I, I asked Sean if I could use them, so he's nice. Yeah, so
1: this is the chart that um, Danny's just put up. Demand response, industrial sector application, manufacturing processes for steel, cement, and Bitcoin mining. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, you're just gonna have to go on the YouTube and look at this chart. Um, We'll put it in the show
0: notes too. But But the key thing seems to be the unlimited hours.
1: Yeah, so like a steel plant up to 96% low reduction, but can only do up to two hours, that's because they can't it like destroys the production
0: of steel, right? Yeah. You... One of the things that's missing from this sort of like overview of Bitcoin mining too is not just that it is like the amount of energy that you can go back to the grid, like as a percentage or how long. It's also the programmatic ability of it. So like mm. if you shut down the melt shop, you know that's like let's say it's let's say it's ten megawatts. You're shutting the whole thing down. You're not shutting it down programmatically. So with a Bitcoin mine with Bitcoin mining, because each machine is like roughly three point five kilowatts, you can shut down a percentage, an yeah. exact percentage. So you can you can laser focus in on not just demand response, but this is really important for frequency regulation as well.
1: I mean, the great thing about this chart, you look at steel plants, right? You can close them for up to two hours, so you can close down the mill shop. And then you've got all this other stuff that like it impacts the continuous casting, the hot rolling mills, the profiling, blah, blah, blah. And the same with the cement mill. You go into the big mining, it's like unlimited hours, and you're closing down Chart 256 Session. That's all you're closing down. You have to see this chart. I encourage anyone listening to go on to... Danny, can we stick in the show notes? Yeah, definitely. Right. Why,
0: why would it be only 97% peak low reduction? That's what I don't understand. I had talked to someone about that before, and... The basic premise was that that there are other things going on, other operations going on where you can't okay. shut it down like a hundred percent of the way all the way down. The mining machines themselves, as individually as as individual units, pretty much you can shut them all the way down, but it's like the motherboard stay on or something like that. Oh, I, see. I don't remember the exact answer um, that I was being that but there was some there's some reason why it can't go all the way to hundred percent. pretty
1: compelling. So you sit down with people, you show them this, and yeah. What do they say next?
0: Yeah, they're pretty blown away. They want they want more. So this is why we need to do more research because they want evidence to back it up. Then how much have you got from ERCOT? Like, does it? Do we have
1: the perfect case study? Because there's also kind of, and I can't tell if it's fad, but there's also mixed things
0: that come out of Texas. So you'll hear that anywhere. So when I, when I talk to people about ERCOT, I they you know immediate, immediately they kind of huh, yeah like they like oh ERCOT like any energy professional because the ERCOT is kind of a mess in some ways but it's good it's, it's 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 good and it's bad the the bad is that they are there it's like a giant microgrid right yeah but that's kind of forced them that causes bad things to happen but it's also forced them to innovate a lot so that's why they are you know nationwide leaders on demand response and frequency regulation and then on grid, grid telemetry which is basically the measurement of what's going on on the grid the amount of data that they have and the amount of programs they have far out, exceed, far out exceeds anywhere else in the United States by quite a bit. And it's because they are forced to have to do that because of how kind of shitty it is there.
1: This show is brought to you by Bit Casino. Now, Bit Casino was established in 2013 and is the world's first licensed Bitcoin casino. It is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, and they not only have cutting edge security, but they offer fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. BitCasino also has over 2,800 games and tournaments for you to try out. And with their 24 7 live chat support, you can always get help if needed. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B I T C A S I N O.io. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up today, we have Unchained. Now, events, at exchanges and traditional banks over the last year have been an important reminder of how critical it is for you to take control of your private keys. But listen, I know for some of you, this can be daunting, which is why our friends at Unchained offer a personalized concierge onboarding service. Now, I've personally been through the process and I've now set up the vaults for my football team, Rail Bedford. And okay, I've got a personal recommendation here. The multi-sig solution which Unchained have created is so easy to use. They also ship you the required devices and walk you through this step by step so you understand exactly how the vaults work. After you set up, Unchained continues to provide you with regular support to help you get comfortable with controlling your keys. Now, if you've been putting off taking control of your Bitcoin wealth, Unchained Concierge onboarding is a simple way to get started. So book your onboarding today at Unchained.com forward slash Did, which is U-N-C-H-A-I-N-E-D dot com forward slash Did. And at the checkout, you can get $50 off with the promo code whatbitcoindid. Also today we have Wasabi who I am using to keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi is the easiest way for you to send and receive Bitcoin privately. And even for non-technical people like me, it is effortless and it provides privacy by default. With Wasabi, there is no minimum amount, so you can start joining straight away. And Wasabi users make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay and Trezor users, and BTC Pay server users can make payments in CoinJoin, which saves on fees and is a privacy improvement. Also, Wasabi have just dropped a new feature. Now, Trezor Suite users can make coin joins directly on the hardware wallet, which is obviously very cool. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to WasabiWallet.io, which is W A S A B I W A L L E T dot I O. Is there any other demand response happening in any other parts of the grid now? Because yeah, outside of Texas? Outside of Texas. Oh, yeah. yeah. Definitely. Because so, so we only hear of Texas, or I only have heard of Texas, but. What else is happening? Is it little test projects, or is it like serious parts now?
0: So this is an important caveat into state work. So states, the majority of energy policy takes place at the state level. Okay, that's part of the reason why Satoshi Action Fund is highly focused on the states. Not only because we feel that there's a lever there of of bottom up grassroots ability to impact policy that can't be thwarted by DC, but also because almost all energy policy occurs at the state level. So any kind of any kind of demand response. Any sort of shifts when it comes to utility regulation are, are all done through the state. The decision of whether or not to opt into a RTO or an ISO occurs at the state level. All of that is with state policymakers. And so there are plenty of states that have demand response. They've opted in. They've decided to create those programs through their public utility commission or public service commission. Those public utility commissioners, public service commissioners are the ones that oversee everything that goes on in that state. So. Uh, let's say, like we even Texas has one, but like let's say in the state of Oregon, for instance, you know you have the public utility commissioners, and they're appointed by the governor. There, some states elect them; nine states do, uh, which is a very interesting area for us that we're looking into, seeing if we can get folks elected to those positions that are that are favorable towards Bitcoin. But anytime you want to change anything with the with regards to power in that state, you have to go through that. You can use the legislator. you can say, "Hey, state legislators, force the public utility commission to do this thing," and that can happen. But um, you don't always want to go that route. You usually want to go work with, if you want a change to happen, a positive one, you want to go work with the utility through the Public Utility Commission to to let them do something. Uh, we found out really quickly uh, that utilities don't like being forced to do anything by the legislator. Uh, a funny story, when we went into one state, we realized there was some backlash against one of our pieces of policy. And so we decided to put it on like the back burner and not introduce it anymore. Um, Well, when we went into a different state, we accidentally, it got introduced, the communication didn't occur properly to nix it, and it still got introduced. Well, that really pissed off all of the local utilities because it was basically forcing them to, a a new program to be created that they found was like direct competition to their business model. And so they went like all in on trying to push back on us. And at one point we even had, to sit down with like all seven of the lobbyists from all the local utilities, and they had to t- you know, we had to convince them that we we're not like here to kill them or mess with them like it was an accident, we're sorry, uh, but they didn't believe us and they killed every single piece of policy that we oh. tried to push in that state. So what, So, where have you had the wins? Where are your biggest wins? Yeah, uh, biggest wins for us are Missouri, oh, excuse me, uh, Arkansas and uh, Montana. I say Missouri because that was we came razor close to getting a third win there. We passed our right to mine bill into law, in Montana and in Arkansas. Arkansas is the cleanest version. Uh, Rep McClure there, he introduced and passed that policy. We actually introduced and passed that policy in one week, which is probably a world record. Uh, we all need to thank Eric Peterson, our policy director for that.
1: What, why did it go? Why did it move so quick? What? Why did they suddenly get it?
0: You know, I I personally wasn't like on the, on the ground floor for that one. That was like why I say Eric Peterson, we shall, he needs a big round of applause because he was working very actively in the state. Sometimes things just move like that. Like things, that's the great thing about the state level is if you get, let's be clear, there was a ton of work done before the introduction of the passage, but it was close to the end of the session. And so it was kind of like, we got to do or die right now, introduced committee, flipped to the other side committee, you know, voted on the House and Senate, passed to the governor all within one week. Because it was so close to the deadline that it had to be like super fast.
1: And right to mine, just what? What does that mean? And like, like I know it's kind of obvious using the words right to <laughs> yeah. mine, but what, what protection does the legislation give?
0: So it protects against mostly um, any sort of discriminatory practices that we've seen taking place across the country at the oh, state
1: level. Oh, taxes on Bitcoin miners.
0: So... Specifically, the right to mine bill protects from any sort of discriminatory zoning changes. We saw that happen in Montana, where in Missoula County, they ended up driving a Bitcoin miner into a $20 million operation into bankruptcy because they changed the zoning laws around where that miner was located. Um, What happened was... So, Missoula is a... You know, they have some people there that inside that admin that I wanna mean, call administration, um, the county board there that did not like Bitcoin mining and they they viewed it as a climate emergency to get rid of it. So they called an emergency meeting and then they changed zoning laws so that the miner couldn't continue to operate. And that was that's a form of discrimination that we made illegal in the state of Montana and, and in Arkansas.
1: Where you mentioned there are other parts of the grid that are now using the mine response. Where else? Like I say, I only hear yeah. of Oclaw.
0: Yeah, and there are, and just to be clear, there are multiple forms of discrimination we outlawed in states. If people want to go look at the policy, we have it up on our website. Um, it gets pretty nerdy. But yeah, it's just rate discrimination, zoning changes, noise complaint, frivolous noise complaints. And we also exempted Bitcoin miners from money transmitter licenses as well. Um, uh, uh, Georgia is a really good place. They have a very good demand. Uh, they have some, I want to call it demand response. They have the t- is 12 Coincident Peaks program there which essentially says that every single time, every month we're gonna measure when there's the most demand on the grid. And if you, whatever percentage of like energy you're using at that time or, tra- or strain that you're putting on the grid, that will impact how much you pay for energy for like the whole year. And so what you wanna do is you wanna be able to figure out when those moments are and turn off so that you don't get, you, you don't have your, your sort of transmission costs go up through the roof. Um, there are, there are demand response more or less like in in some version of it in like a lot of states like in Oregon we have a residential demand response so they have a the ability for like smart water heaters thermostats to participate um yeah i would say there's i'd, I'd have to go look at the map again if you voltus has a really good map of where the in like industrial load demand response programs are up but i believe there's about 9 or 10 states that have pretty significant demand response programs. That's kind of insane really now. Voltus, yeah, and Voltus is a really interesting company because they're not even a Bitcoin miner, but I've spoke with some people at their company and they, all they do is demand response. They just help people get in and participate in those sorts of programs. Um, I don't know what their revenue model exactly is and how they how they make money off that, but they said some of the, almost all their largest customers are Bitcoin miners. It,
1: it, so a couple of things that makes me think of is that, is there enough, does the Bitcoin network have enough Available capacity to support every part of the grid to be able to use demand response. And when I say that, you know, are there enough ASICs available? Uh, Is there enough infrastructure? I know you can get there. Um, And can enough of them make enough money off it to make it? Because it's a great demand response tool as long as the miners can profitably mine. And then secondly, I think, well, if, if America as a country adopts this, nationwide as a demand response for every part of the grid, are we centralizing mining into the US?
0: That second question is, you know, highly debatable. Um, I, I think the United States out of any country is probably the most well positioned to absorb the largest percentage of hash rate because of our governance structure, because of the ability for states to kind of say, we're not going to do that to the US government, like an example would be like marijuana policy. So it's a federal crime to possess, distribute, grow, yeah, yeah. you know, sell marijuana. And yet at the state level, you have almost 75% of the country that's got pro marijuana legislation on the books. It started in 2000, and this is a model that we actually follow in, through Satoshi Action. Uh, you know, in 2010, the a new wave of pro marijuana advocacy started taking place. And they really focused at the state level and they focused in on, you know what are the benefits of the marijuana industry, not of the plant itself. There was the medical conversation was taking place, but that wasn't the driving force. Right. The driving force was increased tax revenue, more jobs, uh, increased property prices, and lower crime. And that pitch worked in two states first: Colorado and Washington. Yeah. 2012, they passed pro marijuana legislation on the books, and um, like I think it was like um, not just like medical marijuana, but what do you call that? Recreational? Recreational marijuana. Stoners. That's right. But stoners got to smoke weed for the first time, not because it was like, oh, this should be my right. I should be able to do this. I should be able to put it in my body what I want. But it was because of advocacy groups that went out and said, taxes, jobs, lower crime, higher property value. So that worked in those two states and then it spread rapidly across the entire country. And now even states like Texas are, pass- are I think they did pass or are about to pass pro-marijuana legislation. Um, and we, that's the same model we follow at Satoshi Action. So we go around, we say, this can create jobs, local investment, grid stability, environmental cleanup, and the ability to enhance green and renewable energy projects.
1: Well, we saw this in uh, Texas when I went out, made my film, went out to Rockwell, met the mayor. Yeah,
0: yeah they love it. So yeah. the diff- and lo- that's why local is so much better because they actually still care about producing results. Like DC, not only, I wouldn't say they don't care, I just would say the incentives are not properly set up to produce results. And this, the incentives to produce results get diminished as time goes on. One of the driving factors of that is that they can, they have the unlimited money printer, so they can just print anytime they need to, but they, they don't have to worry about whether or not they can afford it. They can just push a button and print more money. Um, the other one, which is really interesting that I became more aware of recently is that back in the 90s, there was a big push to get rid of pork barrel spending in the United States. What's that? Uh, pork barrel spending also called, um, um, ear, ear, ear tag dog ear spending is like you, they would just essentially like add, just add random stuff in You're like, Oh, you want a school in your district? All right. I'll, 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 just write that in here. Like, I'll just write random stuff in like, Oh, you, you want a new, uh, you you want a new stadium. Let's write a like special little carve out for you right here. Like you could basically bribe other elected officials to vote for your bill through this system. You could just write in whatever they want. Oh, what do you Sign want? Sign my bill, I'll give you some shit. Yeah, exactly. but the, But this, that's the whole um, house of cards, backdoor,
1: horse trading thing that that feels very different from UK politics.
0: You can still do it too, to some extent. It's just way more limited. Uh, but, you know, and, and you would think offhand, you know, that seems bad. We should get rid of pork barrel spending. That seems like a corrupt system. But the negative outcome of that has been that it's been almost impossible. It's made it very difficult to pass policy now in a bipartisan way because there's no incentive. There's no bribes. Sure, But but look, if the bribes are good, if if it's a new school, a new hospital, great. Listen, I'm not like pro pork barrel spending. I'm just, uh, I'm observing what's happened. What's happened is that we got rid of it. And so now it's like, we can't get politicians to agree on anything. But that same dynamic does not occur at the state level necessarily. I wouldn't say there's like unabated pork barrel spending, partly because they don't have an unlimited money printer. So now they have to focus on, how do, I get my elect, how do I get my constituency to keep voting for me? I have to produce results. How do I produce results? I need to bring jobs. I need to bring economic value. I need to, whatever the thing they care about, clean up the environment. So, And those are the five things that we really hit on, and that's why.
1: Yeah, so when you sit back and look now, you consider Bitcoin in America, which always felt like something that they would eventually outlaw nationwide. It always felt like, I was always surprised it had never been outlawed early on in the days of Bitcoin, there's always this existential risk. Yeah, they are just federally outlawed. this. They'll say you just can't use Bitcoin. Um, it feels like we're beyond that now. But when you step back, where do you see Bitcoin is now when you look at it through like a regulatory lens?
0: Well, I think we're in a great position. We weren't aware of where we obviously can't predict the future. So two and a half, three years ago, we had no idea where Bitcoin was going to land with the federal government and and also the states. I was one of those early people who said, I reject the idea that the United States is going to ban Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. And instead, I believe that we can have a brighter future where the United States leads on Bitcoin. Because a, a world where the United States leads on Bitcoin is a much better world.
1: Well, it goes back me and Danny has talked about this for years. I think um and I think Bellagio and Marty hit it on on in their show. In a world of C B D C in the world of C B D if America does C B D C it's never gonna be as good as China. Because they're better at control tech, they're better at surveillance tech, they're better at con- you know, using surveillance tech to control their people. You know, you're not gonna get away with that here. You've got too many guns, you've got too many people who but well, you've got a country that's born on freedom, right? Yeah. So if you're going to beat them, beat them with freedom money.
0: Yeah, I, I think that we should do as much as we possibly can to make sure that we're printing as much freedom money in, in the freest country in the world. So all the Bitcoin mining here is great. And, 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 and I also b- firmly believe there's, a, there's another main reason why we focus a lot on Bitcoin mining in America, tying back into this idea of like, what can you produce today or what can you provide today for people? Like Bitcoin doesn't have a lot to offer other than kind of more or less to speculate on for Americans. But Bitcoin mining actually has something to offer right now. You know, it's my pitch again, like jobs, local investment, grid stability, but these things are true. And these are things that people want and they need now. And in fact, in the case of grid stability, uh, NERC, uh, North American Energy Reliability Council. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of these things in yeah. the energy world. They came out recently and said that a lot of the United States is gonna be dealing with rolling brownouts and blackouts for the first time in decades. That's very uncommon. We should be, we, we should be heading the, you know, towards more stability more reliability, but we're moving away from that. And so Bitcoin mining can help solve that problem and make everyone's lives better. And that's something that you can do today. Now, if you're able to get to a place where grids, energy companies are adopting Bitcoin mining, which is taking place, it's slow, but it's, it's happening. In fact, one of the largest utilities in the entire country has been studying Bitcoin mining on one of their microgrids in one of their research arms uh, as, a, as a demand response resource. So if this is taking place. It's just gonna, it's a slow world in order to make big changes. But as you get more energy companies at the state level and utilities in particular to adopt Bitcoin mining, you'll put Bitcoin into an extremely positive uh, political position. As I mentioned, that all energy policy takes place at the state level. Well a lot of these utilities, they're regulated monopolies. And anytime they want to do anything, they have to ha- it has to happen at the state legislator. Well, because they're so dependent on what goes on at the state legislator to make anything happen. They have a lot of power at these state legislators. So they are very close to the policymakers. They have teams of lobbyists. And all of a sudden, when you turn all, make all these utilities be pro-Bitcoin, they're going to turn all those resources towards protecting Bitcoin at the state level.
1: So, OK. So how much work is there for you guys to do? Like, how big a job is this that you're doing now? Um, because I... I... I imagine there's a scenario, there's two things going on here. There's all the work you're doing for Satoshi Action Fund, really important. Honestly, dude, I'm very impressed. It's very cool. But there's also personal ambitions. <laughs> you know, where you want to go with your career. Yeah, you got a football team. I have got a football team. It's the Chico's. The big it's the one cheat we spoke about
0: that. Oh yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. The pre the pre-talk, the pre-conversation. Um so po- politics is a very difficult game to be successful in, there's a lot of people who try and don't get very far. I've, I've tried before and it just kind of didn't really seem to go anywhere. So it's Same not, with football, man. Yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, people, everyone wants to move to Hollywood and be an actor, right? But sometimes it's it's a combination of luck, um, hard work. Timing. You know, relationships, timing is huge. Oh my gosh, timing is incredibly huge. Um, I, I realized I was in a really good position to have a great career in the space in the, in the political realm when I had a phone call with someone who led a grassroots effort to kind of grow the libertarian party back in the, I think it was like 2010s. And I, I, some of the stuff that I do today, it was like kind of, I picked up on some of his strategies and or like some of what he did in the past, we will probably implement in the future as well. So he had a lot of great strategies and I was just like, Hey man, yeah, like really loved what you did. It's uh, really admired your efforts, even though I'm not necessarily like a full-blown libertarian, I just, his strategy was was sound. And he said, you know, you're in like a really unique position. He's like, you, you don't realize how like fortunate you are to be where you're at. And I was like, I, I, I was like, it used to be like, think this guy was like a big deal. Like he was really smart and could pull things off really well in the political space. He's like, you're like so well positioned to like do whatever the hell you want to do in the, in the Bitcoin, you know, political intersection. He's like, I, I He's like, basically he was like saying that he's like, he's jealous of me. What do you want to do? I don't know. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a good, it's a good question. Do you want to be a politician? I've thought about it, but it's, I'm in a much better position right now to have the impact that I want to have by being in, you know, Satoshi action through my advocacy work. I'm way bigger. If you care a lot about one issue, oftentimes it's better to not become a politician. Right, so I'm not that- saying I've crossed it off the box ever, but people have definitely told me that I should run, but there's no sort of like... It's about timing part of it. It's there's no sort of like obvious like, oh, that you should go do that.
1: Yeah. So that intersection of Bitcoin and politics is where you think right now you can have the most influence and impact. A- absolutely.
0: Yeah. I mean, this last year we in our first year we passed right to mine into two states into law, almost three. It was like about as close as you can come. And um we're gonna keep doing that. Also in Montana, we passed a ban on additional taxes. On Bitcoin when it's used as a form of payment, so that we're really happy to be able to include something a little bit different. It's not quite Bitcoin mining focused. We thought that was really cool. We're gonna be expanding that sort of like inclusion of policy in the right to mine as we go to other states. We've looked into like private key protection as one thing. Like you can't force someone to show you their private key unless like, you have a warrant. Uh, we think that's really important to protect Bitcoiners. Um, but now. But you, hold on, do you even want that?
1: Like a warrant to your private key means a warrant to take all your money? Well, you, it's it, a weird it, thing. It's not like a warrant to see a balance. Well, I mean, if in the case of like a criminal case where you are forced to to give up. Oh, proceeds of crime. We have we call it proceeds of crime in the UK where-
0: Yeah, something like that, or like could be anything really. Like, you know, there's a lot of different types of criminal activity that can result in, you know, a legal process where you are forced to give up your money. And they, if you can't, you still need that legal process for, for Bitcoin. Like it's not gonna go away. It's always gonna be there, so. But but if but if like let's just say you get pulled over and a cop like snaps a shot of your like private key that's like in the back seat, then he now has all your money.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that sort of behavior we don't like. There's already a law that has worked towards that in Wyoming. We like what they did there. We we think we might need to expand on it though. But the, but the plan is to continue. If there's a lot of work ahead of us. We are going to continue passing right to mine. So we're going state by state. We have already picked out. Our target states for 2024. This work has to start really early in advance. We're way ahead of where we were last time, so we feel great about our position. We've already picked our top states out. Feel confident about them. We've touched base with some of our, you know, kind of key supporters, the people that really like what we're doing, and they've said that you know those are states that they're looking at too. One of the key distinctions, I think, that's really important about the work at Satoshi Action is it's not guided by anyone outside of like myself and like my co-founders. So we don't, take, we don't take orders from the industry. We don't take orders from anyone. We par- purely just care a lot about Bitcoin and proof of work. And that's why we're out there doing what we think is important for the space. Uh, but we're going to continue passing right to mine. And then also we are really interested in banking policy. Okay. So a lot of digital asset companies uh, that really pretty, you know, it definitely includes Bitcoin miners, care about what's going on in the banking space. I know you've probably had people on here have talked about some of the choke point, 2.0 stuff. Yeah, and, yeah. And what's going on with the FDIC and the overreach of the federal government and the feds denying the master count to custodia. Yeah. We're really interested in those sorts of events that are taking place. And we, we think there can be something done at the state level. Uh, how big is your team? We have myself, my policy director, we have my research lead, my two co founders, and my business developer. Okay.
1: And uh, how, how are you funding this? Is it just all donations?
0: Yep. Yeah. 100% donation-based. Uh, we do also do um, events where we, we do benefits and stuff like that. So it gives people a, a, kind of a different way to give to the organization.
1: So I guess more money you could do more? Oh, yeah. So what is, the, I mean, just like use this, speak to the people. Speak people. to the people. Speak to the people. Tell them what you need.
0: Yeah. I mean, one, for instance, last year, you know, $25,000 was enough to go into a new state. Oh, okay. So that's you know, it's much more affordable. So money goes a long way at the state level. Now that's smaller markets. So that's like a Missouri, that's a Arkansas, that's a Montana. And um, there's probably additional costs beyond that, but generally speaking, it's roughly about $25,000 to go into a small market. If you want to go into a medium sized market, it's about $50,000. If you want to go into a large market, let's say largest like Florida, you're going to need like a hundred K, maybe more at minimum, at minimum. uh, If you want to go to like a California or New York, you need a million dollars. Right. Okay. So, so we're not we're not going to those states yet because they're too big they're not only are they hard to influence, but they're very expensive.
1: But at the point when you've won over a bunch of smaller states, I'm assuming that makes it easier to tell the story to other states. It's like, look what yes. we've done here, look at the impact. This is why it always feels like right now I feel like we're on this we're on the cusp of Bitcoin really, really exploding. Not just as a you know, a bull market where a bunch of people buying it, use cases, whether it's mining, spending yada, yada. It just feels like we are on the cusp of a real explosion. Everything seems to be pointed in the right direction. Whether or not you agree with BlackRock or you think, yeah, what they're up to, it's pointing in the right direction. Coinbase winning against the SEC, you know, the wins you're having, it feels, like, it feels like everything is just pointed in the right direction. I've never felt more confident about the success of Bitcoin than
0: I do right now. I'm in the same boat. I think that um, you know, this last hype cycle was really like the mass media, like really everyone understood now what, or maybe don't understand it, but they are aware of Bitcoin. There's not a person on this planet that I'm like, you know, I say Bitcoin too, and they don't know what that word is. Well, we have mass awareness. Yeah. There's mass awareness. Well, that was the last cycle. Um, this next cycle, I think will be, I don't know if I would call it mass adoption, but I would definitely say that it's the next bull run is going to put us in a very good position. And I hope. I mean, we're, we're pretty far along. What are we, we're in the longest bear market now, they said.
1: That I'm I don't
0: know, I lose track. It said Someone said that the other day, they're like, we're in the longest bear market ever. I was like, I barely even noticed. <laughs> so, but it means we're closer to the next one, as, I guess is what I mean to say. The halving is on the way. You've got companies like BlackRock and many other large organizations all of a sudden that are very interested in Bitcoin. You know what, it, Larry Fink was calling it like- Digital barometer. gold. Barometer, well, he was calling it a barometer of crime in the past. Uh, yeah. And now he's calling it digital gold. Yeah. And it's a safe haven.
1: Well most of the poor narratives have been defeated. yeah. And I think what'll be interesting in the next one is uh, how much of the mainstream media start to flip and actually report accurately. There was a thing on Twitter this week um, with Forbes a couple of days ago, all the positive articles and saying, oh, it's all since BlackRock. Actually, Forbes have been pretty good for a while, but the point is we are getting better articles coming from the mainstream. It it just
0: remains to be seen if uh, the people like the New York Times continue to produce garbage. you know, others. Right to mine is our most popular victory, and we've passed that in two states. But we have had you know a lot of other victories along the way that are really important to us. Um, you know, we were able to go into New Hampshire. There was a commission there where. They asked us about Bitcoin. We did, I did my 40 to 50 minute long presentation. And at the end, it was a governor's report that came out and it essentially directed the state to adopt Bitcoin mining into the its energy infrastructure as much as possible. Love it. Uh, we recently went before a Utah task force where they you know, asked us about Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining. And at the end of it, they said, you know, we're going to introduce two pieces of your public policy. Uh, in Texas, that was a big one that we haven't talked about at all, where there was an anti-Bitcoin mining bill there. That was mm. where Pierre and I were kind of engaged. And that was SB seventeen fifty one, and that was an uh, attempt to go after the industry. And defeated, right? Yeah, I mean, I I would say that there were many important participants in that effort. Uh, There usually is in big political efforts. Um, One of the most important, definitely, being the TBC with Lee Bratcher. Yeah. And then um, there was there was others as well. The Digital Chamber that that came along and supported as well. We were a big part of we were a big part of that effort. Um, uh, we hired a we actually had a lobbyist on on our team down there at one point where he was helping us and he still works, he's still working for the organization. Um, we were also able to we played a minor role in killing two other anti-Bitcoin mining bills, uh, same same one in Texas, a different one in Texas, another one in Pennsylvania, very minor role in those as well. We you know, we've spent over a thousand hours researching, excuse me. We've spent over a thousand hours educating policymakers and regulators on this technology. So we've become somewhat of like expert educators on why Bitcoin mining is good for grids, why it's good for utilities, why it's good for cleaning up the environment. And now that's pretty much where we spend almost all of our time. Um, Another fun one too is I also got two presidential campaigns to adopt the Lightning Network. Go on. Yeah, that's the last one. Yeah, who? Uh, Vivek and RFK. (laughs) Did you see when they put those QR codes? I did, I didn't know that was you. Yeah. Well done. All right, last thing I
1: do want to ask you about. Uh, We touched on it earlier. Uh, how useful has Jason's book been? I've been waiting for that book to come
0: out yeah. for so long. It felt like, I mean, it wasn't that long, but it was like, you know, we needed a book like that badly, desperately in the space because it, it like you've mentioned before, it's pretty one sided, the attention that Bitcoin gets. And it, this is supposed to be Bic, Bitcoin is supposed to be money for everybody. Anyone, not everyone. Literally anyone. I mean, even BlockRock, right? Yeah. It's like, it's supposed to be for everyone. So why are we having this sort of conversation that it is a you know, Republican or conservative oriented money? And there's even this kind of like dialogue that, oh, when people find Bitcoin, they become more conservative. Like, I don't think that's true at all. In fact, I've, I've found that in general, when people look at Bitcoin, they tend to see, if, the, if you look at it object, objectively, you, you tend to see your own values reflected back at you. Hmm. So if you're a conservative, you're gonna see, oh, it's small government, and that it is anti-money printer, and that um, it is you know protecting people from r- this runaway inflation that's going on right now. And then if you're on the Democrat side, if you're on the progressive side, you're like, this is money that anyone can have access to, no matter where their position is, no matter what where they are ranked on the socioeconomic ladder, and that when they possess it, that they cannot be discriminated against their access to that money cannot be discriminated against so it doesn't matter what your sex is what your gender is sexual orientation what your political beliefs are no one can stop you from using it that's like the most progressive you know that's a huge component of like progressive ideology is equal access and bitcoin is the most equally accessible money that's ever existed mm. at least digitally right yeah maybe not like physically cuz you, you know that's one of the benefits of physical money is that it's it's more permissionless and anyone can access it
1: yeah, when he when he reached out to us, we knew straight away. We're like, if
0: is that here? It's outside. It's because you hear it in the headphones. You're like, yeah. Did you play that? Nice. We <laughs> <laughs> um
1: When when he approached us, it was like, okay, if you can pull this off, you are you're making the most important book for Bitcoin right now. That's what I felt. Yeah, because we were missing. Like whenever, yeah, we used to get a lot of emails, people like, oh, or comments, people like, all your show is uh, right wing and libertarian. And they kind of put them together. And, and then we'd look through our history of guests. You know, you know, fair play, you're right. And so we tried to get more progressives on. And we knew it was important. And we knew it would get pushed back. Uh, that's why I, you know, I wrote the forward as I did. Because I I think people really missed why. Like if if you're a Republican, you missed why it's so important to have progressives into Bitcoin. And so we we thought if he pulls this off, it's going to become, it, w- it will be the most important book written right now for Bitcoin. And yeah. he did pull it off. He nailed it. I'm so proud of him, honestly. It's like to go out there and say you're going to do it, you know, to drop an email and just reach out to a few people. And it, he made it happen. And the book is fantastic.
0: But, but as, for, as a tool for you, for what you do, how important has it been? Oh, it's extremely important. I mean, I, I, almost every time I'm engaging with an elected official and folks that are you know, politically engaged, progressives, Democrats, I'm giving it to them. And it's important for them because they're able to see the value of Bitcoin through a progressive lens. You can't, if you, could, you know, I love the Bitcoin standard, but it's like, you're not, and it's good to, if there was no other book, that's good to give to them and, and then say, Hey, here's a book. And then you can have a conversation with that person and build, build that relationship. Like for instance, some people got upset about us handing it out in DC. It's like, listen, it, it's not necessarily about the book itself. It's really was used more as like a tool to engage those political offices. And we gave as many of the Progressive case for Bitcoin out to Democrat offices as we could. Uh, we didn't raise as much money for that one because it started, it was the third one. We raised money for Bitcoin standard layered money and then um, Progressive's case. And also Progressive's case was much more expensive uh, per book. So we only had, we able to get like 25, 30 copies of that. Um, but now what I'm doing is I'm giving it out to as many people as possible. Because it's like it's like a it's like a tool that you can use yeah to get people that are traditionally like less interested in Bitcoin to see the value of it yeah and it's only going to we were just getting started like it just came out and we just did the DC thing and then I also had a uh, was part of a fundraiser for Senator Cantwell in Portland Oregon she's a Washington senator and uh, Senator Wyden was there and I gave it to both of them and you know just handing it out as much as possible to people that see Bitcoin or that. We want to see Bitcoin, but need to see it through a progressive lens.
1: Brilliant. Well well done, Jason. Big shout yeah. out to you, buddy.
0: Right. Anything else you want to talk about?
1: Do you want to tell people where to go and how can they support you?
0: Yeah. I mean, for us, there's two ways that you can really support the organization. Um, obviously money always helps us a lot. And so if you are, care a lot about Bitcoin, you care a lot about Bitcoin mining, you know, feel free to hit me up via email to have a conversation about the work that we're doing and also what we have planned for the future. We have big plans for 2024. Uh, you, can hit, you can email me at Dennis at SatoshiAction.io. If you wanna email me directly uh, on Twitter, it's at Dennis underscore Porter underscore. Um, I read all my DMs as I mentioned earlier in the show. Uh, we have small dollar donors, we have big dollar donors. That's one of the, my favorite things about our organization is we are funded by the you know broad masses. We're not just funded by a few large corporations. Um, and then relationships matter a lot too. So in the political space, money is the fuel, um, but relationships are the engine. So if you have relationships with elected officials that, you know, that would be open to what we're talking about. If you are close to people that are like staffers or in the political world at all, maybe a large organization, maybe an, you know, there could be like an industry group for an energy company. I'm happy to come speak to them. I do presentations all the time, very regular, Presenter for the space, uh, educator for the space. So really, if you feel like there's any way that I can be helpful in educating large groups that will have a big impact on policy or the way that energy companies view Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining, then uh, you know, please reach out to me. Brilliant.
1: Well, Dennis, well done. Congratulations. It's important what you've done, and it's impressive what you've built up. Anyone listening, you want to find out, or support it. We will put it in the show notes. Good luck, man. Just keep going. It's amazing. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. All right, brother. All right. What'd you make of that? You enjoy that? Okay. As I said in the intro, I just do want to give a big shout out to Dennis for the work he's been doing, the work he's been doing with politicians trying to push pro Bitcoin legislation. And he has made some big gains. So, congratulations to him for that. And yes, we are packing up here in Nashville. We're heading off to Austin. It's been a great week. They are doing amazing work down here at Bitcoin Park. Definitely get yourself to Nashville. Think about becoming a member. Support their work. These areas, these hubs, these nodes for Bitcoin are super important. All right. Anyway, got to go. We got to head off. We got to pack up. So you got any questions about this or anything else, drop me an email as hellowhatbitcoindid.com. Else, I'll see you in Austin.